Hello and welcome to our new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Aidan Gall to review all the Euros action so far and give a preview of this Sunday's clash between Italy and all the neutrals' favourite, England. See who has the chance to win the 2020 Euros. Aidan, welcome to the show. Nice to meet you, Connor. Nice to join you. Yeah, I don't know about the neutrals' favourite, but we'll discuss that a bit later. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here. I listen to your podcast pretty much every week and yeah, you're doing some good stuff, so keep it up. Thanks for the words, Aidan. Um, I suppose where to begin? I mean, how have you enjoyed the tournament so far? Anything of note you'd like to bring up? Um, it's obviously it's been excellent. So, I, I, like, I'm not sure. I I'm not sure if the quality of football is what really makes it stand out, or is it because obviously we've been through the last eighteen months with no crowds and kind of like a felt like the training ground kind of atmosphere in a lot of games. So obviously the games have been, they've felt like proper games of football when you're watching them. So I think a lot of that is due to the crowds being back, but also like there has been some excellent games as well. Uh, so yeah, this has been a, probably been the best tournament that I can remember in recent history, or recent memory. I don't know about yourself, what do you think? No, I'd have to second that. Um, definitely in terms of just entertainment, quality of play. Obviously, you'd imagine it's on a steady increase, tournament in, tournament out as we go through the years. But I suppose when you look at it, um, no tournament or no European Championship historically has had a higher um, average goal per game, such as this year. I believe it's 2.78 or 2.8. And I think where that stems from is when you look at the mammoth of the season the players have just finished in yeah. I mean 10 months truncated into nine months where we've seen a lot of drama a lot of late goals games going to extra time certainly a lot of tired minds and legs and dramatic finales indeed and I think the effect the knock-on effect that has is that when we look at the two finalists this Sunday England and Italy to me they're two of the teams that certainly have the most or best squad depth in a tournament and squad depth was huge um, it was a huge factor in that England-Denmark game the other night. The game was on tender hooks, But I think the three changes the Danish coach was enforced to make, to make because his players were out on their feet, really changed the game and swung it in England's favour. I mean, any team that has the likes of Phil Foden, Jack Grealish, Marcus Rashford to bring in off the bench is always going to be a Jordan, Jordan Henderson. Jordan, sorry, Champions League winning captain and Premier League winning captain, yeah, Jordan Henderson. Exactly. Yeah. I'd like to see as well someone with a bit more time than myself could work it out. Uh, obviously, it's the first time something like this has been hosted across so many different countries. So, like when you're saying the amount of goals, late goals, etc., being scored and conceded, like it must be a tournament with the highest amount of distance coverage in terms of travel by teams. Yeah, yeah, certainly you'd imagine that. I mean, for me, where you have a tournament. You know, it, it, I'm, not say, I'm not saying it's on the basis of fair play or not, but when you look at England before the Denmark game, they've played five games at Wembley. They've played one game away in Rome. Where, as you look at the Danish squad, the amount of travelling they've done, surely that plays a factor. A team that have just beaten the Czech Republic four or five days prior in Baku have a monstrous journey home to Copenhagen and then on to Wembley for the game of their lives. I mean, surely that plays a factor. Yeah, it's it's 
it is it's pretty ridiculous but I suppose given what has happened over the last year and a half everyone I think we're all just happy that we're able to see football at this level um and echoing your point on Denmark England like it was just such a crazy shift in momentum like I thought Denmark up until around 60 minutes probably slightly the better team uh passed the ball with energy that Hoiberg was unbelievable in the middle of the pitch like I had him to I had him to win two tackles in a bet and within five minutes of the game he had four tackles won like he was absolutely everywhere he was getting the ball passing it forward Denmark were playing some lovely football and then there was one throw in around the 60 minute mark. They switched off for a second. Saka found a little half yard in space. Both found its way to Sterling and they created a good chance. And then you could just feel the momentum shift. And it looked like from that moment, it literally looked like Denmark just lost 10, 15, 20% of energy. Like, mm. obviously, there's more to it than that. And it probably would have happened anyway. But I think that was just such a good uh, uh, indicator of what was to come. And then after that point, it was just complete domination. It was, that's where the strength and depth of the squads began to show. And looking ahead to Italy, looking ahead to Italy, we'll get onto that obviously later, but I think that could, if if the game is going in level with 20 minutes to go, I think that's where you could see the strength and depth of England coming through again. Because as yeah. you said, the squad is just ridiculous. It's massive. And then I was just looking through tr a few of the trends earlier on, Aidan. I've sent a few to yourself on WhatsApp. And yeah. we've heard Arsene Wenger. He called it the tournament of the small playmaker. Fabio Capello, who's doing a technical report for UEFA on the tournament at the moment, has called it the tournament of 1v1s. And if you look at the stats, 29% of goals thus far have stemmed from cutbacks. And I think the byproduct of that is a large part of this comes from when you look at the 24 teams in the group stages, 13 of them played a back three or a back five, which gives way yeah. to the fact that your players are in as many optimum 1v1 positions as possible. And I think you, a huge part of that we've seen in the knockout games, especially during 16, some crazy scorelines. Spain um, beating Croatia 5-3, France drawing with Switzerland 3-3. For me, a huge part of this Euros has been the teams that are able to manage that chaos. You know, the teams that manage that chaos the best and perhaps have these positional jokers, we call them, in their lineup, such as Denmark with Andreas Christensen. We've seen them being able to vary from a back four to a back five and back to a back four quite regularly with Christensen stepping into midfield. Yeah. We've seen it with Italy um, prior to his injury, Spinazzola. The ground he was covering on a game basis was absolutely incredible. And what he's added to their attack. And um, we've seen teams, on the other hand, Aiden, they haven't been able to manage that chaos as much. We've seen France, for all their work and goals, the strength and personnel in their squad. We've seen against Switzerland, the rotations in a back five between Adrian Rabio in goal, Akanti, and Paul Pogba in midfield. The players really they weren't as glued in as Pekovic of Switzerland, which played a huge role. I mean, nowadays, I suppose, with when you have players playing such high-tempo games every four or five days, how imperative is it to have that basis of, tax, of tactical flexibility within your squad? Oh, it's massive, isn't it? Like, I think this this tournament is really one of systems, structure, and movement playing within that structure as opposed to a tournament of individuals. Because even like I was thinking earlier, looking out for players of the tournament and 
the, like the players of the tournament that you would consider are players who play their role within the system well, as opposed to players who are like trying to break the system or trying to like like France, I suppose. They had three individuals up front. Obviously, Benzema is much more than just an individual, but like you get the point. They were kind of playing to hope that three players would do something. And with those three players, usually you're going to get away with it most. Then Switzerland's system was just, they had, like, I thought their first half, they were absolutely unbelievable. And uh, Xhaka was the best player on the pitch. But he, he was only doing what Xhaka always does. But he had all the right moving parts around him to make it look like he was a world-class player. And I think you can look across all the squads the same. I think I, I would have preferred Spain... As a non-neutral England fan, I would have preferred Spain to play against England on uh, Sunday because I thought I thought Spain were absolutely outstanding against Italy. That midfield three with Daniel dropping back in for the overload in midfield, I thought it was like the, some some of the analysis was saying why did Italy drop back and let Spain have the ball or something along those lines, but they didn't have a choice. It was just. Complete domination, domination of space, knowing when to move in, knowing when to move out, knowing when to go down one side, knowing when to come back. They never force balls through. It was just that uh, it's the tournament of systems, really. And I think that kind of reflects the way football is going in general at the minute. The individual is kind of being curtailed. If you want to use Jack Grealish as the kind of poster boy of that kind of thinking. Because, uh, yeah, so so that to, it sort of builds on your point that it is, it, it is, Football is moving in towards less individual brilliance and more of individual brilliance within the structure and place. Yeah, it certainly is becoming more and more of a collective game, as strange as that's, that seems to say. Um, we saw it the other night with Southgate's decision to bring off Grealish. Um, I've heard a few people explain it. I think the best analogy was, or we were discussing Phil Foden. You've seen when Foden came on the pitch, he was given a continuity to the play keeping the ball, moving at an extra pass forward, getting it back, able to go sideways, backwards. Whereas Grealish is a maverick. Unbelievable player. What a player. But it's just his nature, isn't it? To get the ball, draw two, three defenders, slow everything down, yeah. draw it again. Which there's no no problem at all whatsoever with that. But I think Foden, in terms of what he gave England the other night against Denmark, especially at the end, that, seat, that 54 a sequence of passes they had for over two and a half minutes was something to be yeah. watching an English team do it. But um, in terms of systems, just touching on Spain the other night, for me, an absolute masterclass. Collectively, my favourite performance of the tournament thus far. And as you said, when you have somebody as disciplined as Busquets anchoring that back four, and then either side you have Koke playing high and wide in a half spaces, uh, Pedri phenomenal once more and Danny Olmo perhaps that what Danny Olmo did the other night Aiden, he gave an indication and he gave a clue to England and Harry Kane in particular as to how best to overload that Italian midfield and perhaps draw out the two aging warriors that are Benucci and Giorgio Chiellini yeah well Chiellini is like he's a legend obviously and uh, he has been a great player but he's a huge weakness in the Italian side uh, if from my if England can get the game opened up in any sort of way, then Saka is going to have joy down that side, especially with Emerson if he's playing left back. Uh, it's like you, you see, we've seen examples of it against uh, in the last match 
against Spain. Uh, Cellini looked a bit ragged, out of position, slow on the turn, poor in possession. Uh, so I, I always find it interesting when you see two midfields of that quality and one midfield completely outplays the other midfield. It's always very strange to just get your head around. And I think in those cases, a lot of the time, it then goes back to what are the defenders like on the ball and how are they in possession? How are they timing their passes, moving into areas, creating overloads? And I think that's kind of where Spain had the edge over Italy. I thought, I haven't looked deep into the stats or anything, but I, it looked from just my first time viewing that Cellini gave away the ball a lot. He was very sloppy in possession. And now I don't think that's going to be a huge factor against England because I think you're going to have more than enough to have periods of domination in the game. But if, they, if England can keep it tight until the last 20, 25 minutes, and then bring on the likes of Grealish, Roden, uh, like Sterling was outstanding in the last game, uh, then I could see them going on, maybe winning one or two nil. But if Italy can go into the last 20 minutes with a the lead, then everything could become tight and compact, and that's where Cellini will sort of come into his own. Yeah. And just as, as I touched on Sterling there, trying to think of individuals, like I've, I've been a big critic of him all season, but in terms of player of the tournament, I think he would probably have to be up there as a kind of a standout individual, as opposed to the likes of Jorginho, Pedri, these system players. But yeah, Sterling would probably be in my top three or four players of the tournament. Yeah, he's certainly been effective. And then, I mean, how ironic is it only a few weeks ago, not us, but certainly the media and the English media at large were and Harry Kane dropped deep to receive every ball against Scotland. England had no reference point up front. In fact, Harry Kane playing that half number nine, half number ten position on Sunday may in fact be a large part behind England's success with the runners beyond them in Bukayo Saka and Raheem Sterling. But um, yeah. in terms of Kalini the other night, yeah, I think when you look at the passing accuracy stats, they're not as high for him as they were for Benucci. A large part of that was you look at Spain, of course, without the ball. With the ball, they were playing at false number nine, 4 3 3. Without the ball from goal kicks, you notice they played a 4 4 2. And we've seen Spain isolate Gorgio Collini on the ball playing out in the back. And we've seen how Italy have done it throughout this tournament. If you've noticed, Aiden Benucci beginning the goal kicks, sliding the ball to Donnarumma to attract the press, you know, move, <laughs> move the needle by a few yeah. inches, so to speak. But I think a huge part of any success England will have on Sunday goes down to the fact, does Southgate stick with that back four or does he revert back to the back three? And Kyle Walker, he's been an absolute huge, huge he's played a massive part in England's success in the last few games, especially in the knockout rounds against Germany, against Ukraine, the other night against Denmark, he was almost akin to a cheat code. I mean, yeah, it does, it does seem unfair when it does seem unfair when you're watching them play sometimes. <laughs> like some of those covering runs, it's just it's insane. But think about that: a player, you know, cons <laughs> consistent of his physical capabilities, along with somebody like Pep Guardiola downloading his brain into Kyle Walker's. What a player you have there! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh you you know, I, I do criticize a bit for Man City. But uh, this tournament, I think he's been outstanding. And uh, like, like I don't, I don't like Southgate's way of playing. But you have to, you have to admit when it's been effective. Uh, Kyle Walker's not asked to do as much going forward as he's a Man City. Uh, Luke Shaw, although he's been unbelievable going forward, he doesn't go forward consistently on a like on a 
consistent basis. When they're in possession, Luke Shaw's not up high and wide as a winger. They're kind of reserved in the fullback role, and that probably suits Ty Walker a bit more uh, than being asked to be nearly like a Philip Lamb type of fullback or like, you know, what, what he has to do at Man City. And that's Ty Walker's mistakes come from volumes of possession, the amount of times he's asked to play killer passes. But at England, he's asked to do less, and therefore he makes less mistakes. And then you can see what he's really good at, which is defending, 1v1 defending. He's probably one of the best in the world. Yeah, I mean, when we look at that England squad, they're, they're a team so fixated with control. And I suppose whether they play a back four or a back five really is ancillary to what they want to achieve overall. Whereas we look with Italy, perhaps, I mean, I don't know even what is a complete team anymore, but perhaps they are the closest incarnation of a team that are complete across the four phases, as we will see in this tournament. And we all know how they'll set up. Without the ball, 4-3-3, shaping back into 4-5-1. With the ball, they'll push on one of the fullbacks, more often than not Emerson, as opposed to Di Lorenzo on the right. I mean, someday, I mean, what do you see the big tactical battles that are coming up, Aidan? I don't, I don't think it's going to be a, a game for the type of person who just wants goals and excitement and that type of thing. One for the purists, I think it's going to be. Uh, so we, we'll probably enjoy it, but there'll be a lot of people giving out about it. I think it's going to be very, very cagey. Uh, England have pretty much followed a similar kind of trajectory in most games, apart from Ukraine. Uh, so like, not the most exciting thing to watch, but very, very solid. Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips offering a massive shield to the defence. Don't give away many chances. Give it two big chances against Germany, and that that was their slice of luck for the tournament. But other than that, they've been very very solid. They don't look that fluent going forward, but then once they do make changes and try to shift the momentum, they can look very dangerous because they've got top class players. So like I get, I think it's going to be a similar pattern to the Denmark game, just not as emphatic. Uh, if Italy can ha- get a goal that. As I said before, I think they could hang on for one to win. But if it goes in level and it comes down to fitness, uh, squad deaths, that those type of things, I think England are just going to have too much room. Because you could see, like Italy were dead under feet against Spain, and and I know they're not going to get a run around like they got against Spain. But you could see that the they've got two over thirty centre backs, so like you know <laughs> that that will pay off levels of the game and Jorginho was being asked to do maybe too much or he wasn't got, getting as much protection from the forward players so he was being dragged out of position and uh, yeah before the Spain game I would have been very confident in Italy win after the Spain game and after seeing what England did to Denmark I'm probably edging slightly more towards England what do you think? To be honest I tend to agree but I think a huge bearing on the result on Sunday will be them for the midfield Ed. I mean you look at it, the Italian midfield on paper Jorginho, Verratti and Barella, incredible, incredible talent. But then you look at England's midfield pairing, uh, Rice and Phillips. I mean, they have been, been maligned a small bit for their use of possession. But without the ball, there's no debate over their quality. Um, I mean, I personally see Phillips and Rice matching up with the two free eights and Verratti and Barella. And then I can maybe see Kane perhaps screening Jorginho from receiving the ball in midfield. I think Jorginho has a huge role to play. If the Italians can be a bit patient in their build-up, 
and what we've seen in the past few games with um, Chiesa and Insignia staying high and wide, pinning back that England back four could have a huge bearing because for Italy, it's all about control and that midfield. We've seen the game against Spain. I mean, if you look at Italy's last two games, I suppose, against Belgium and Italy, drastically different from one another. Against Belgium, I thought they controlled the game really well. And you look at somebody like Jorginho, he completed 99% of his passes. And Belgium, although we're chasing the game, they were more adept to getting Italy on the counter. Whereas we saw Italy the other night against Spain, when they were in that mid-block, or when they tried to press high, they did get quite the runaround from Spain's young uh, dynamic forwards. And that false nine, as we spoke about. But when they sat deep in that low to mid-block in the 4-3-3, I thought they held their own, to be fair. And for all of Spain's dominance, did it translate necessarily into shots and target? Did they danger Donnarumma apart from the goal? Um, I mean, Oyasabel had a few opportunities, but his touch was a bit heavy or was a bit too light in other instances. But for me, a huge bearing on Sunday is the Italian approach. Do we set up as to how we you know, constrained Belgium? Or do we sit back and see what England have to offer? Um, contrary to what a lot of people think, I think Southgate has another ace up his sleeve. I necessarily wouldn't be surprised if Saka didn't start. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody like Jaden Sancho was to perform because if you can or, and play, because if you can stretch the pitch high and wide against those Italians and pin back Emerson and pin back Di Lorenzo, I mean, you'll give space to Harry Kane and Mason Mount to drag Jorginho out all over the pitch. Um, we spoke before, Chiellini and Benucci, as good as they are, they're very old. And what you want to do if you're England on Sunday is remove any points of reference for them. Yeah, I, I agree that he mightn't start Saka, but I think he should. Because I, I thought Saka was very good during the night. Uh, and I think just particularly down that side, like, to be, I, I don't, I watch as much uh, Bundesliga as I should, but I know Sancho's an unbelievable player. Uh, but I think just based off the last two or three times I've seen Saka in this tournament, he's clearly full of confidence. Uh, and if he can get in those little spaces between Emerson and Cellini, Kane dropping into midfield, then you can see a lot of damage being done that side particularly. And then obviously Sterling can do damage on the other side with the form he's in. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's like I know Spain didn't create massive amounts of chances, but I, I still I didn't think when they were sitting in the low block, I, I, I was never too confident that they were going to hold them out. Obviously, if balls are going into the box from wide areas, you're going to back the Italian players to win it. Uh, but I still think it, that there was too many spaces being created in dangerous areas for my liking. Uh, like, yeah, so like I, I do agree to a point that Italy did defend quite well when they had to, but I don't think it was a case of Italy wanting to do that. I think they were being forced to do that against Spain. Mm. But I think that game's an anomaly because uh, I don't think England or anywhere near as good as Spain on the ball. So I don't think we're going to see a game like that. I think it might be more of a Belgium game. Uh, Italy are probably going to have more of the ball. Uh, you can hear I'm speaking in a lot of vagaries here because ultimately I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I do I do think Jorginho, Verratti and Varela are just going to be slightly too good for the England team. But then on the other side, England front three are better than the Italian front three. So it's going to be a very interesting game. It's going to be tight. Exactly. I wouldn't be surprised to see a penalty shootout. I'd love to see England losing a penalty shootout. <laughs> I mean, I suppose we did we did begin by stating they are the neutrals favourites England, so 
<laughs> um, I actually really like the team. That's the, that's the thing. Like they're they're uh, very likable group of players. Uh, they uh, are absolutely top quality, and it's really a testament to the way the structure is in England that they're producing these types of players now on like a consistent basis. So like you got to admire everything they're doing, but I think it's just the the media elements and the rotten part of the fan fan base. They're really just drive like the wedge between what people want and what uh, people's perceptions of it. No, I, I think there's uh, that's huge going into Sunday that you know that notion gets swept underneath the carpet per se because they're a fantastic group of human beings, the players and the staff. And I think what you're seeing with this English team it's fairly representative of modern day England. Um, I've seen, I mean, you've seen Gareth Southgate the way he empowers those players such as Rashford and Sterling. And I mean, we saw with the Phil Foden, Mason Greenwood incident last year, how he could have easily banished both from the England setup for the foreseeable, and he didn't. He brought them back in. I think Southgate, more than anything, he's a tremendous human being, and I think that rubs off on the rest of the English squad. And we see how they are nowadays in 2021, as compared to we spoke to, we spoke about this in length before. Uh, 2004, 2006, 2010, down in South Africa. I mean, how can you not succeed with a bunch of players like Wayne Rooney, Michael Owen, Lampard, Spoles, Beckham, Rio Ferdinand, John Terry? But what we've seen now with this bunch of players is there's a real culture there. There's not too many egos. I'd say, if anything, there's no egos within that setup. And I think that's, it's, you know what, it's refreshing. It really is refreshing to watch this England. Yeah. I said the same in 2018, and although they had a lot more deficiencies back then than they do now, they were a joy to watch. But this England squad for me, I wouldn't begrudge them winning on Sunday. If anything, it would encourage us at home probably to get our act together a bit more. Sort our stuff out, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the only thing I don't like is the pragmatic approach. But like, you know, if, if they win, is then, you know, it's just not how I would like to do it. But that's why he's managing England, and I'm not. But because, but ultimately, like I, I'd love it to just play the one sitting midfielder. Uh, then maybe the fullbacks, or or if the fullbacks went up high and they had two midfielders, but just do something a bit more expansive, get more of the attacking players into the starting eleven. But if you win games of football, you're a genius. So he's winning games of football. What he's doing is obviously right. It's just not really what I look for in a team, or what I go out and watch in a team. It's always an interesting debate, though, isn't it? And the, that debate of style in football. I mean, what constitutes style? I mean, solely if you're going out to win an international tournament, which you should be at this level, you know, it's a question of being relevant versus being effective. And I think before the squad, before um, the Euros, much has been made about the study which the England data analysis did of past winners. Um, we've seen France in 2018, a sturdy defence, four clean sheets. The Portuguese team that went on to win the 2016 Euros, four clean sheets also. Spain, that won the 2010 World Cup, conceded one goal. One goal throughout yeah. the whole tournament. You know, a team that unconsciously we reflect back on as being these emperors of style. They were anything but they controlled the game through possession alone. Um but for me, I mean, this England team is complete across all phases, perhaps not as much in possession as we spoke about. But if the game on Sunday becomes a game of transitions, I think that will suit Southgate and his men. And I suppose Sunday then caps off a wonderful month for me. And if you're a kid growing up, just watching wall-to-wall -wall football coverage of this Euros, it's been absolutely fantastic. 
and it does take me back to the days of the South Korea World Cup in 2002 and the Euros in Portugal in 04. Yeah, I sure. I, me- I remember being in a pub for that uh, game against Spain in 2002. Don't know how long ago that was now, or what age then was back then. Yeah, so it's like 10 or 11. So, yeah, like obviously these things stick in your brain, stick in your psyche for your whole life. But uh, yeah, based on the Irish team now, I don't think we're going to be seeing it for quite a while, but that can be for another day. Uh, but yeah, I am. I'm looking forward to it. If England win it, fair play to them. If England win it, fair play to them. I, I, I'm not very tribal by nature, so I just like to see good games of football. Yeah. I, to and it's an I, I interesting game of football. Yeah, I think especially, you know, after what we've all been through over the past 18 months and a lot of people have had a very bad, but I think, you know, be it the English or the Italians that win on Sunday, you know, both sets of fans would have deserved it. And for me, the outpouring of emotion in Wembley and the two nights earlier on this week in both semifinals were absolutely fantastic. And I suppose Denmark, the night they beat Russia 4-1 at home in Copenhagen, still the hair you know speaking about it now the hairs would be on the back of your neck you know that's what we live for in football ultimately you know what's not to say that Denmark team was every bit of of a success as to you know whoever lifts that trophy on Sunday yeah yeah it all sort of it all sort of culminates on top of each other doesn't it and uh, yeah Denmark were incredible as well to be fair the way they play uh, the players they have with the population, like, and obviously, uh, you sent me that article about the under 21 system and the philosophy behind it. And yeah, it's, it's just great to see the fruits of all this. All when football is done properly from an early age, like, it's not rocket science at the end of the day. Uh, mm. and the fruits that do generally bear when things are done, uh, like together like in like one structure throughout every age group you can see what happens and yeah i mean i think even if you look at home you know there's no reason why we couldn't implement that at the moment and i know there's terrific people within the fai such as nyla regan working within coaching education and the dutch guy who's been there for the past few years apologies his name escapes me now but they've done tremendous work revamping game structure yes through Docker. but there's a bit more that can be done because yes we are a small population four four and a half million people but you know the english and i heard this phrase the other day when they were speaking about rice and grealish and questioning their allegiances the the three lines you know there was a bite back against us saying we're more obsessed with poaching than we are with coaching i think that's still true as of today It is, but at the end of the day, we both know at home, football isn't the sole sport. Not like in Denmark, where you have football and ice hockey. At home, we have Gaelic football, hurling, rugby. But nonetheless, I think that's not a good enough reason to throw in the towel. And to be honest, since the stuff about John Delaney's come out in the media, mishandling the finances, fair enough, talk about it all you want, but nobody's handled the situation appropriately. I don't see the money being pumped into grassroots. I don't see the roots and branches reviews should be happening. Maybe I'm wrong, but certainly not reaching the eye of the public. No, I worked as a league analyst of the Irish League for four years and followed this year as well. The one thing, no, every three euros. Uh, so 
teams that have outdone sort of what they would have been expected to do. They all have solid leagues and all their players can be those leagues and then can be trusted to go into an international setup. Like if you look at the Danish league, I've covered that before, it's a pretty decent standard. The Ukrainian league, pretty decent standard. The Croatian league standard. Like all these leagues, trust players to go through those leagues another level or go into the team. In Ireland, we just don't have that. Like, you, for instance, was I am I the best that they ever played in this league, in my opinion. And done quite well when he played for Ireland, but wasn't trusted. And that's fair enough. It's not a league where you can go from our league to international football. So, like, until we sort out our own league, we're never going to be able to produce players on a consistent basis. I don't think. No. And I think... You know, we look at moments in the past, such as Lille in 2016, Robbie Brady's winner against Italy, um, 2002, South Korea. You know, those moments are going to become more and more fleeting if we don't get our act together at home. But then to touch upon moments, I mean, speak, referring back to this Euros again, I mean, has there been any true standout moment for you, Aidan? Muller's miss. Muller's miss against England. Yeah, yeah. And sorry, and, and to go on a, a positive as well. Uh, um, yeah, Benzema's first touch against Switzerland for that goal. Incredible. It was, it was on Burkamp's level, kind of. It was that, that kind of uh, level of skill, I think. Not quite as good as Burkamp's touch, but it's, it's definitely up there. I think for me, in terms of moments, I'll probably, I've, I've missed the context of this question totally, but. For me, I'm going to refer to two different nights. Um, the first night being the the final night of the group stage in uh, the group of death, where you had Germany and Hungary play in a 2-2 draw, along with Portugal and France simultaneously, which also finished 2-2. Fantastic night of football, tons of swings and turnabouts, which left um, pretty few mouth-watering uh, ties in the round of 16. And then you couple that with the Monday we had at the, the first Monday of the round of 16, Croatia, oh, yeah, Spain, Croatia, Spain, France, Switzerland, phenomenal. Yeah, that was unbelievable. I think for me as well, um, you know, Denmark aside, of course, which was tragic what unfortunately transpired in their opening game against Finland. Man of my tournament has been uh, Spain's Luis Enrique um, for what he went through over the past few years with the tragic loss of his daughter. I mean, his Spain team, what they embody, um, I mean, in his mind's eye, this vision of football he has in Riki, which takes the best out of Barcelona's tiki-taka and the verticality of Jurgen Klopp's counter-pressing style at Liverpool, for me, was every time Spain played, you didn't know what was going to happen. And I suppose that culminated with one of, in my eyes, one of the best uh, performances in international football in recent years, despite losing against Italy on penalties the other night. They were a joy to watch players that necessarily, apart from Busquets, who haven't won at all, um, playing for the manager, playing out of their skins. Um, you look at that penalty shootout the other night, it could have went either way. Um, one has to feel so sorry for Alvaro Morata. You know, <laughs> the 40, 50 minutes he was on the pitch had the game of his life, scored an incredible goal, um, ran Chiellini and Benucci into the ground. But for his tournament to end in that sour note, coupled with the death threats he was receiving at the start, you just feel from. Yeah, he gets a very bad rep. He's an excellent player. And uh, 
like people saying after, oh, he shouldn't have enough to take the penalty. I hate those kind of narratives after the fact he misses. Like he's a professional footballer. He's shooting from twelve yards. He just scored a goal. You know, he was the, he was the game changer really. Because for all for as good as Spain are up to a certain point, they're lacking that real world class quality to really impact games of football and win two three nil. If they had those, like, like Ferran Torres is an excellent player, but, you know, he, he's not he's not top, top level yet. And that's kind of where Spain are at. And that's why, like, ultimately, for as well as they played, they still drew three games in a row in 90 minutes. So, like, there is, and I know they scored a lot of goals in the earlier rounds, but I think if they had one or two extra top quality players, uh, the midfield play would, would and defence play, it would all sort of work a bit better together. But yeah, no, Morata was excellent. And, and that day was unbelievable day of football. Incredible. And um, uh, just one, one, one player that I, I don't know if I mentioned yet, but Frankie De Jong is just absolutely active as well. Sensational for me. You know, ideally, I mean, we've played midfield a few times together, albeit unsuccessfully. But uh, <laughs> when you see, uh, when you see a player receive the ball with their back to goal, you know that's a trigger to press. But with the young, you see now players go to press him and they second-guess themselves the whole time. His ability to receive the ball on the back foot, escape pressure, play into pressure, play out of pressure, he is the 21st century midfielder. Um, I think you know we speak about the Busquets role, the McAuley role. Certainly, I think we'll be speaking about the, the young role for years to come. And if Barcelona can sort their off-field troubles, what a midfield they have for the coming few years in Pedri and the young. Yeah, and Busquets. And, sorry, and Busquets. <laughs> Just the greatest of all time. But yeah, yeah no, those, those, midfielders, those midfielders, I love those midfielders because they're taking risks and they're playing, they're progressing to play forward and it's like, but those players stand out so much because it's so hard. Uh, if you were to cut off the tournament at whatever stage Netherlands got knocked out, I would have given player the tournament to Frankie de Jong. So yeah, I just wanted to give him a little shout out because he's George Watch. And then Aidan touching on performances of the tournament. In front of me, I have six written down. You might be able to add or subtract from this list. First up, I have Robin Gosens versus Portugal. Next, Kevin De Bruyne and his 45-minute cameo against Denmark. Paul Pogba versus Portugal. Jan Sommer versus Spain in the quarterfinal. Jorginho versus Belgium with a pass and accuracy rate of 99%. And then finally, Pedri and Dani Olmo versus Italy. Can't argue at all then, but you're missing out on Xhaka against France. Yeah, <laughs> you're bound to miss yeah, one. I thought he was unbelievable that day. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we, I've had arguments for Xhaka before, but I think that day he was, he was the best player on the pitch. So, but I can't argue with any of those other performances really. Calvin Phillips against Croatia, maybe. Hmm. Uh, yeah, other than that, uh, who would be your kind of top three players overall for the whole tournament? Mine? Yeah. Um, I still need to think about the order, but I... Definitely have Sterling, Petri, and Jorginho. Um, we spoke about earlier, you know, systematic players such as Jorginho and Pedri. 
are the game changers? No, but I mean, the whole game flows through both of them and more specifically Jorginho. And for me, he's quite a quandary of a player. I used to watch a lot of Maurizio Sarri's Napoli and Jorginho was just so vital to that system. So, so vital to its function. Um, at Chelsea, I mean, he hasn't received the best of treatments, let's say, um, by the fans. He hasn't always been loved by his teammates either. But he had a slow start under Sarri. Fair enough. Lampard comes in. Um, you know, he chops and changes the system. Jorginho ends up playing as a lone pivot in a midfield uh, tree. Uh, gets caught out time and time again with transitions. But we've seen since Tuchel comes in, um, he's reverted to his old self. So confident in the ball. Um, the tactical camps I've sent you of all the knockout rounds, just been watching them the past few days. And Jorginho's ability to read the game. For me, at the moment, in that midfield position worldwide is unparalleled, unmatched. I don't see anybody else doing it. Um, Italy, granted, only had 30% of the ball against Spain the other night. Jorginho was everywhere, 9-10 interceptions. Um, the whole game is played through Jorginho. Um, should he win the Ballon d'Or if Italy win the Euros? No, but what a season he's had. Pedri, I mean, what a player. Cannot believe he's 18. The decisions he takes on the pitch and the technical execution of them, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I think there's been enough said about him. But then, for me, probably my man of the tournament, and I'm sure yours as well, Raheem Sterling, just in terms of, he's taken a lot of flack this season from pundits and fans alike. But what he's given this England team, an impetus in the final third, um, when Harry Kane hasn't been performing, when the system, when Southgate's system has been maligned, it's often been Sterling that's been the man to step up to the big occasion. And just even the other night, people rave about Kane's pass for the own goal when he played it into Saka. But for me, you look at that darting run by Sterling cutting across not one, but two defenders, the right wing back and Andreas Christensen at right centre-back for Denmark. The timing of Raheem Sterling runs are phenomenal. We've seen it in all the games thus far against Croatia, against Germany, against Ukraine, darting across that front post. Incredible. Yeah, and it goes under the radar too, that kind of stuff. But uh, And even just like the sheer fitness and physicality of him, like even to win that penalty, uh, he ghosted past the full-back and 100 minutes into the fifth game of the tournament, something like that, and just like he never stopped running. He was not only like not only stopped running, he was beating players. He was getting his end product. Uh, like I don't even think it was a really a big dive. I think nine, 99% of players would have fell there. It was just the decisions, the responsibilities on the VAR then to make the correct decision. Like he, he's running through bodies at a ridiculous pace. Uh, you know, if he goes down, if he gets a touch, it's kind of here and there. That's it. Like, it's literally why the VAR came in, because it looked like a penalty in real time, and it wasn't when you looked it back, and it didn't change it. But that's no slight on on Sterling. Uh, he was just, yeah, I think that that was his best game in the tournament. And I'd, I'd look, I've been a critic of him all season. I think he's been pretty poor. Uh, especially in the last few months, his decision-making on the ball has been poor. He's taken too much out of possession. Uh, he's not getting in goal-scoring areas. So, like, I don't know, it's about lack of confidence, just a bad run of form. These things happen. But, yeah, it's good to see him 
get back on track here. And to be fair to Southgate, fair play to him for keeping faith in him, especially when you have the likes of Sancho, Grealish, Foden, that could come in at the start. That's huge. And I suppose it leads into another question altogether. When you look at the clamour for the likes of Jack Grealish, Jaden Sancho, Phil Foden to get in that England starting eleven. I mean, where do you draw the line on club form translating into international football? It's quite remarkable, really, in the fact, you know, at St. George's Park, you speak about Club England. I really think that's a thing with Southgate. You know, um, we've heard Steve Holland come out the other day, for example, and call Connor Cody his player of the tournament for the leadership he's given on and off the pitch. You know, a man who hasn't played a minute in the tournament thus far. I think it's huge to have players like that involved in your setup. Um, I mean, you just know in international football, look at the reactions of the French players with Deschamps during extra time with Switzerland. Look at Chaka, where, you know, him and Vladimir Petkovic dovetailed for, you know, their speech during the halftime of the extra time. Look at the Spain players, the way they reacted after beating Switzerland, the celebrations with Enrique and the Italians with Mancini and Gianluca Vialli and Lombardi, you know, look at them in their huddle after every game in the knockout rounds against Austria, against Belgium, against Spain the other night. There really is that sense of cohesion and unity there. And for me, you know, whoever lifts that trophy on Sunday, it would have been well, well deserved. Yeah. Yeah, and it does, as much as we get out of international football most of the year, it does, when it is on a tournament like this, the players do have that extra motivation or that extra passion to play for their country. That's into entertainment, really, because we, we love to see the players' reaction to goals, like in just raw, unadulterated. Uh, so we, we love to see that passion, and maybe at club level, you don't get it as much. So that's why I think that aspect, as well as fans being back in the stadium as well as the quality of football the goals yeah it's really just been the perfect tournament so yeah perfect cocktail and I suppose to close Aidan um, before the big final prediction what would be your team of the tournament oh uh, big one Donnarumma and goals yeah um, you're playing a 4-3-3 oh of course yeah yeah 4-3-3 Kyle uh, Walker right back um, you can. Are you going to give your own, your one after? I'll give my one after. Yeah. Uh, so centre backs. Then uh, you put me on the spot here. Centre backs. I'll I'll go Benucci and Cellini. Even though I don't really believe it, but just 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 because the seasons they've had. I know Cellini hasn't had a great season, he's 36. Uh, no, actually, I'll take that back. I'll take out Cellini. Benucci and Simon Kerr. We give Kerr the one for the for his heroics in the group stages and for uh, that Ericsson incident. And uh, left back. Um, left back, I'm not sure. Luke Shaw, I suppose it has to be, doesn't it? Yeah, it's uh, been incredible. He's been unbelievable. Yeah, and I've been a big critic of him too. He's been proven wrong a lot for players this tournament. Uh, Jorginho on the sitting roll, Pedri and De Jong in front of him. Um, Sterling left wing. Um, I'll go 
between Lukaku and Benzema up front. I'll go Benzema just for that touch. You got to get him into that touch. And he's just he's just a, such an incredible footballer. Um, and right wing. I'm not sure about right wing. Uh, I this like the formation won't be too great here. But we go with Danny Almo just for that performance against. Yeah, uh, yeah. he was unbelievable. Yeah, we have a, su- a few similarities. Um, in goals, I've done a rumor. Um, four or three, three as well. So in goals, done a rumor. Uh, special mentions to Casper Schmeichel and Jordan Pickford. At uh, right back, Denzel Dumfries. Um, oh yeah. Quite the attacking figures, didn't he? For the three yeah, group stage games. Good. Unfortunately, Netherlands came unstuck against the Czechs. Um, Kyle Walker narrowly misses out. And uh, two centre halves, Harry Maguire. And Gorgio Kalini. Um, left back, Spinazzola, just in terms of the possibilities he offered to us all throughout the tournaments and in terms of representing this new Italy and the way he dovetailed with Lorenzo Insignia on the left. Uh, Joaquin Myla of Denmark and Luke Shaw miss out also narrowly. Midfield as well, I have Jorginho sitting um, to the left, Pedri to the right, Heiberg. Denmark and Tottenham, who I think was absolutely phenomenal um, through all throughout the tournament, playing in a slightly more advanced role than he does for Spurs. Um, I read a stat that prior to the England game, he was responsible for something akin to 33, 34% all chances created for Denmark, which if so, what was uh, Jose Mourinho doing with him at Spurs the past season? Um, yeah. Calvin Phillips, Paul Pogba, for me, narrowly missed out in getting in that midfield. Um, up front, very tough. Uh, I went for Lorenzo Insignia on the left, just in terms of the output he's given Italy throughout the whole tournament. Um, he's been terrific. Raheem Sterling on the right, my man of the tournament. And then I suppose Harry Kane. Um, we talk about players coming up trumps at the right moments. You look at Kane, um, at pretty anonymous against the Germans. Turns up with that goal uh, to make it 2-0 and seal the game for England against Ukraine, right place, right time. And then um, the other night against Denmark when it mattered most, albeit a rebounded penalty and then getting a pre-assist for the first goal. Absolutely terrific leadership from him. Um, and his ability to win free kicks at the end shouldn't go unnoticed. Um, yeah, and I suppose a shout-out, two shout-outs indeed to Patrick Schick, who for a long time has been threatening to fulfil his potential and hopefully now with the Euros will give him a Bit of a kickstart going forward. Before, before you say your second, before you say your second shout out, I'm going to replace Danny Almo with Dan's guard for Denmark. So yeah, um, just in case you say, yeah, I think he he has to go in. I think he was unbelievable. Position, Dan's guard was brilliant, absolutely terrific. Um, I mean, he might not have quite the attacking output, you know, in the club game as of yet for Sampdoria, but his ability, I suppose, for Denmark to just contribute to all facets of the play he's been terrific and for a man of 21 22 years of age again like Pedri and many others in this tournament he plays you know he plays like a man beyond his years and I was going to say also yeah. Roman Lukaku had a terrific tournament and yeah. what yeah. what he does for club and country should never go unnoticed and an absolute beast and over the last few years especially I've noticed the last two now under Conte He's refined his game tremendously, his ability to hold off pressure and his way to play in blindside of the defender, make off the ball runs, open up space for his teammates 
he's been terrific, a joy to watch. Um, for me, then for me, Belgium, you know, it's just a tournament too. Again, of what if, you know, what if De Bruyne wasn't going into that Italy game half fifth? What if Eden Hazard wasn't injured against Portugal? But um, again, another last tournament for Belgium's golden generation. Yeah, I I do think they were a bit overhyped this tournament too. Uh, when you look at their back three, I just I, I could never see them winning it. You know, like Th- Thomas from Allen was their centre of back. Yeah. Like, that's just not good enough. <laughs> so he's playing for a vessel of Kobe. He's yeah, playing for one of the Japanese he's teams. Japan. Yeah, he's in Japan, yeah. So, yeah. So I do I do think that their their chances of winning were slightly overhyped. Uh, they, 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 they were too reliant on Lukaku and De Bruyne. And De Bruyne, obviously, with the ankle injury, uh, he just wasn't himself, really. But yeah, no, you, you, see, you had time to think about your team in the tournament. You put me on the spot. But pretty good thing uh, Kane I think is kind of lucky to get in there but you know he, if he's producing in the knockout stages then you'll take a few quiet games in the group stages yeah uh, to be honest it's all about effectiveness I mean people you speak about Frankie de Jong getting into your team and Denzel Dumfries getting into mine I mean the Netherlands had a disappointing knockout Round, but I mean, if you look at the three group games that preceded, I mean, both were terrific for Holland. Spinazzola got through um, got through seventy minutes of the Belgian game, and unfortunately, he's missed out in the yeah. semi final and the biggest game of his career now in the final. But he's been absolutely terrific. That's not to say Luke Shaw wasn't deserving of a place in my team. The last few games, absolutely sensational. And you speak about the clamour for Jack Grealish to play. But the way him and Raheem Sterling have worked together in down England's left has been absolutely terrific to watch. And then... Um, his timings of his runs are unbelievable. But see, that doesn't get spoken enough about Aiden. It's just about the finer details in football. It's not necessarily speed we're seeing nowadays. It's all about arriving in the right place at the right time. Um, I saw Italy. I've studied closely their last few games. And for me, just again... Looking at Giorgio Chiellini, 36 years of his, of age, but the way he went toe to toe versus Lukaku, he was one step of him, one step ahead of him the whole time throughout that um, quarterfinal clash against Belgium. And um, the other night against Spain, he was, yeah, he was dragged a bit all over the place playing against that false nine, Danny Olmo. But for me, it's just that ability to read the game. It's smaller details in football. What gets his body position when he's receiving the ball is another one. You know, when he's closed, it's an invitation to press him. But lo and behold, he's playing out the other way. And you see an 18-year-old in Pedri and a veteran in Koke, the Atletico Madrid winning captain. They're both able to, you know, to read Busquets' intentions like that. It's a joy to watch. And for me, that's what makes international football some of the best, you know, sport and activity we'll ever watch. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, To close, Aidan, I suppose, game 51... England versus Italy, the neutrals' favourites being England. Strong Italian team going there under Mancini. Um, what are they now? 33 games unbeaten at international level. Absolutely phenomenal achievement. I mean, I'm going to push you now. What's your prediction? One all extra time pens, Italy on penalties. I have Italy after extra time. I said Italy before the tournament, I'm going to stick to it. But um, 
you know. Yeah, I say Germany. They let me down every step of the way. Well, I'm not too happy with the triumph fight prediction I had at the start. Italy to win, Lukaku golden boot, and Nico Barella. I'm not quite sure he'll win it. No, but he's an incredible player. Yeah, loud mouth in the field. Five foot six, he's like Roy Keane incarnated. <laughs> Just with a better understanding of the game. Yeah. And uh, yeah, similar accent, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, we better call it a day because i got to run. We'll probably end up talking for another hour about something else if we keep going. Cool. Aidan, pleasure to have you on. Sorry? Best of luck. Good talking to you. Best of luck. Likewise. Take care. Thanks for coming on. No worries.